are we? Why in heaven are we here? And how to make sense of this mess of our humanness and perhaps even transcend it. Welcome back, everyone, to season two of Dawn of an Era of Well-Being, where we deep dive into uplift with insight, thanks to remarkably informed guests exploring the nature of our human nature and how to better relate to it. If abnormal is the new normal and perceiving is the new believing, then inner is the new outer and consciousness is our source for healing. Yet for many, it still seems like anything but the dawn of an era of well-being. From climate to war to geopolitical riddles and more, archetypes are falling, infrastructures are crumbling, nations are transitioning, bedrock is shifting. So what's going on? Well, if you look at it from the outside in, it's the same old conflictual story getting rather scary. But now we're raising the bar by raising awareness that this mess of our humanness can only be resolved from the insight out. Think about that play on words. Insight, as in inciting violence, versus insight, as in vision that emanates from a profound shift in perception about the world around us and within us. Welcome, everyone, to a special edition, a special royal edition, if you will, of Dawn of an Era of Well-Being, examining the passing of an iconic archetype and how to assimilate yet another great global change. Queen Elizabeth II recently passed. Her televised funeral was seen by an estimated, so they say, 4.1 billion worldwide, uh, the largest viewing audience perhaps of any event in history. But uh, rather than dwell on the numbers and despite criticism about imperialism and colonialism, whether or not one is a royalist or a monarchist, there is no denying the unprecedented fascination. Her familiarity and continuity span seven decades across this planet. And with her passing, it punctuated the insecurity and instability of an ever fragile world. For many, this represents the end of an epoch and yet another successive world transition amidst bedrock shifting. In a sense, it felt a little bit like the end of a long-standing popular television series where we've become accustomed to, enamored by those characters and ongoing storylines that we project ourselves into and onto. And when a series ends or the main character departs, we're left a little bereft. We feel a bit empty. So it's worth examining how influential the outer world marks our inner and consider a if you will, rebalancing act to help navigate outer upheaval with inner balance. As Shakespeare states, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. Well, it does seem as if we've shrunken that spotlight to only a few privileged players, the spotlight being consciousness, the stage being the stage of life. And both spotlight and stage belong to all of us in every sentient being. So imagine if we can consciously and conscientiously expand that stage for a wider spotlight cast upon the many. Perhaps we can then inspire the entirety of humanity and species to bask in the light of center stage, celebrated even as iconic individual greatness becomes reflected in our collective. 
I'm your moderator, Alison Goldwyn, welcoming our remarkable host, as ever, Irvin Laszlo, and today's very esteemed guests, Anne Baring and Jude Curvin. They're going to help us make sense of this momentous turning point and explore the deeper meaning and long-term implications of the Queen's presence, her passing, archetypes, and so much more in this episode, The Royal Road to Recovery, Uncovering Our Inner Riches for the Dawn of an Era of Well-Being. So welcome, dear, dear ladies, Jude Curvin and Baring. It's lovely to have you here with us. Thank you, Alison. Thank it's you. always lovely to be with you. And it's always lovely to be with my dear friend, Anne. So mm. I'm really looking forward to this exploration. And as you say, it's such an incredible timing, almost like the turning of an era and what that can mean for all of us. So, yeah. Absolutely. And I want to jumpstart this conversation with you both and when Irvin arrives as well in this fashion. Imagine, if you will, the Taj Mahal, Notre Dame, the Great Wall of China suddenly vanishing. Now, many people will remember the shock of the World Trade Center during 9-11. When outward symbols or individuals disappear, something in us also seems to. I'd like us to discuss the importance of collective mourning and if 11 days of pageantry and the subsequent funeral were about more than just grief over the queen's passing and this epoch and also her celebration of life, but moreover the loss of so much in these past two and a half pandemic years. I mean, no one and no thing officiated in such grand measure over our collective global trauma. So are archetypes akin to parent figures? And if so, how to instill the queen within us all so we don't lose ourselves amidst so much outer loss and turmoil? Um, who would like to begin? <laughs> Dive in. <laughs> I think that the queen stands for the royal value in all of us, unconsciously. Mm -hmm. Therefore, she is of tremendous importance because there was only one person who's held that for 70 years in the whole world. We don't realize that we have a royal value within us. We don't realize that we carry that archetype, but she held it for the whole world as well as for the Commonwealth. And that was important, an important role, a supremely important role, because very few people are able to carry that, are capable of it. And she was capable because she was trained by her father very early on as a teenager and as a young woman, she was prepared for that role. And he knew what it was because he had the deep sense of service and the deep sense of the archetypal importance of royalty, what it means for the people to be the servant of the people. And she carried that on at a very young age, only 26, I remember, or 27, I was 20 when she came to the throne, I think. And I remember the importance of that moment and something really sent shivers up and down my spine, even at that age before I knew anything at all. But it was what she stood for, which was reflected in something within me. So I think Jude, I'm sure, would like to say something about that also. But for me, she carried the royal value, the archetype of the feminine as well. <clears throat> Thank you, Anne. I, I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, she came to the throne when her father died in February of 1952. So she came to the throne before her coronation the following year, a month before I was born. Mm. So my whole life she has been 
my queen. And I think what's amazed me and amazed so many people at this time is this raw emotion. I didn't expect to be in tears when I heard she passed, but I was. And then all through that process, that grieving process, that mourning process that you spoke to Alison was actually a celebration of her life and her service. I mean, I remember seeing, it, it was before I was born, of course, but even before she became queen, at the age of 21, she was in South Africa. And on the, her birthday, when she was 21 years old, she committed her entire life to the people of the Commonwealth, the people of her lands. And she never for a moment gave up on that. Can you imagine? So it's, it was even more than 70 years. It was something like 75 years. And as, as Anne said, you know, she was, she was trained in this service from being a very little girl. I also remember she used to call her, her grandfather, who was the king before her father, Grandfather England. <laughs> rather nice actually but when oh, isn't that so sweet it's so tender so yes and and so when she passed mm. and this is other tenderness so mm. the, the world sort of came out with this pouring of love and I remember President mm. Macron of France saying mm. and he said it in English which is very rare um, for a French mm. president to speak in English and he said to the people of Britain, he said, she was your queen, but for us, she was the queen. Mm. And that really reflects back to what Anne was saying, I think, about the archetype. The other thing I'd, I'd, mm. I'd like to just add into our exploration is, is I'd love to hear more from Anne on this, this, this deep sense of archetypal sovereignty, because in Elizabeth, it truly was embodied as sovereignty, and she would often sign her letters, your servant, Elizabeth which I also think was so beautiful. So there was this idea of beyond that sovereignty, which we all have within us, it was always in service to others. It was sovereignty. And another way that I've, I've you know, she's been a constant in my life. I talk about moving beyond a role model where you're playing a part. You know, she had lots of crowns and lots of jewels and lots of this and that. But she was a soul model of that sovereignty. It was deep inside her soul contract in this life that she mm. would embody that soul modeling in service to the greater good that is an excellent point and we are going to hear Anne's thought about that but i did want to say that that came to my mind that people are wondering was she just an extraordinary performer an exquisite performer who could hold the role for decade in and decade out or was it something even deeper which is what you're suggesting this was her calling this truly was yes. a, 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 a deep match a true fit Anne. What she knew, she knew yeah. from the beginning that it was a sacred calling, and I, it's important we use that word sacred, because it's something that our culture has completely forgotten, has no idea of. So when suddenly the culture is confronted with the embodiment of the sacred and the passing of the sacred, it really uh, makes you cry like it did you just, just now, because something very, very deep is affected, something that we have no idea we carry within us. And, and this yeah. is the perpetuation of the role of service, which in effect is a divine role, because this is what God does for us in a way. He serves us or she serves us. And the person who's uh, chosen by mm -hmm. the divine to carry it all, to, to uh, 
embody this role has a huge responsibility to live up to. And she had the qualities of being which could help her to live up to that tremendous role. She knew from the very beginning, really, or certainly from adolescence, that this was something very, very important that she had to train herself for, listen to her father's wisdom teaching her, and then learn from all the, the people who were teaching her about history and about um, all the things that she would need to know. It's a very difficult role because they cannot give advice, they cannot interfere in the political life of the country that they are chosen to be queen for. Um, it's so it, it requires enormous, um, what's the word, self-control, enormous yes. self-control, enormous commitment, and enormous dedication for 76 years, as, as Jude was saying, not just 70, but yes. 76, and to be supported by all the people she had around her but to keep on good terms with those, not to uh, excite any quarreling, jealousies, envies, etc. That in itself was a fantastic achievement <clears throat> because people are the way they are. They're always trying to get higher up the greasy pole. And she didn't have any of that, you know, apparently in her, in her court. So I, I cried like Jude did. And also I thought the whole funeral was a shamanic experience. It was extraordinary brilliantly done as we do them in this country very well but with deep deep feeling and that gave it again an archetypal <clears throat> position if you like in the minds of the whole world who was watching um, they could see the importance of this ceremony not only for this country nor mm. even the whole commonwealth but for the whole world really? we had lost Indeed. an embodiment of an archetype and I think this is what we saw as her coffin was carried from uh, the Westminster Abbey and then uh, to, to Windsor and then to the marvellous, marvellous services in both places. Again, on an archetypal level, you don't get that in the Sunday service. This, this was extraordinary. And people felt it, that you have the whole hearts of the people were with the Queen as she was carried to her, her resting place. Yes, you're bringing up an interesting dynamic, too, uh, about the quality of a, of a global groundswell, whereas people who were focused on and adoring of and part of her reign throughout her 76 years, if you will, there was an understandable um, sense of emotion and involvement in the 11 days of mourning and then the funeral procession. But all these other people from other parts of the world who really, like even myself, who had not grown up thinking much about the Queen, I from time to time, I was fascinated by her, I would tune in for this or that. But I was sobbing. I mean, I have to confess, and I was astonished by my reaction at watching this and seeing how systematically, person by person, by country, by nation, everyone was starting to share in this. Did that groundswell just, uh, did that bring us further together in support of something larger than the queen, uh, but something that we all need to feel, a kind of global connection to something larger than ourselves? What do you both think? Yes, I think absolutely you hit the nail on the head there. 
because what she gave us the sense of that we are all one and this is as jude knows that and i'm speaking about all the time this is what's coming into consciousness now that we're not separate little units all over the the, the planet but we are in our essence and in the deep round of being which Jude knows so well about we are connected we are one and she gave us that feeling and the funeral brought us together to as it were participate in that oneness and it's, i think that jude i'm sure you'd like to say something to yes. about that well other than totally agreeing with you i think and as well it was the whole i mean my husband and i were in wales you know her last couple of the last couple of days of the queen and and i knew i could feel energetically something was moving so Yes, it, it for me it didn't come as a surprise. I, I I felt there was so much symbolism, so much consciousness playing through this whole period. Because if we go back to the summer, of course, we had the Platinum Jubilee, you know, 70 years on the throne and this incredible outpouring of joy again. And you know, we Brits are quite eccentric sometimes. So I Anne, I don't know if you saw it, but the the, the great celebration on Sunday was was magically, wonderfully, eccentrically crazy and joyful, <laughs> was. yeah, wasn't it? And then there was the whole skit that the Queen did with Paddington Bear. I mean, for Paddington me, Bear, but people will never forget that. <laughs> never forget that. So there was incredible outpouring of joy and gratitude for her. And then only, a, you know, a very short time later, this, this passing. But it seemed to me, and again, I'd love Anne's view on this, the timing felt perfect, actually. Mm. She'd actually she worked till two days before she passed she said as boris johnson said she saw off her 14th prime minister first was Winston Churchill. So she said he saw me off and then she welcomed liz trust and then two days later she passed and in that passing again the signs and the symbols which are so um linked with archetypal presence you know there were rainbows yeah, over exactly i'm so glad yeah, I mean, and I don't know if you was Prince William actually said there are never rainbows. There are never rainbows up in Balmoral. There were five <laughs> rainbows in Balmoral. There were so many signs and symbols that for me were saying she's not gone. She's just moved into a different way of being in service. I, I'd like to come in. There. I'd like to come in there about the rainbows, Jude. I'm so glad you mentioned <laughs> that. In, in Tibet when a great lama passes there's a rainbow so this was a symbol of a great spiritual being passing yeah. and with oh. emphasis in both places both in westminster and in windsor you can't do more than that so to speak this was a, a great being um, yes and she's still there with she us is still there. she is still with us and I'd, I'd love if we have time, there's, there's another sort of whole era of, of connections here. And it is the divine feminine throughout our story, our island story. And I'd like to, um, if, if, we ha if we have time, we'd like to speak of another great queen who is also a saint, and that is Queen St. Margaret of Scotland, because mm. I feel her presence was very powerful through this time and, and you know, Her Majesty's passing on to her next her next job as it were <laughs> in the sense of consciousness so i'd like to come back to that what would you like to tell us a little bit about that now it's, it's very compelling and i don't think many of us know about this okay well i'm sure Anne does. I'm sure Anne does. I, I, yes indeed in the 11th, for our listeners in the 11th century uh well before 
that, we had one monarch who has been known as the Great, and that was Alfred the Great. And he really brought the various tribal regions of, of, of Britain together to form essentially the, the, the origins of Britain. And Margaret was a, a, a descendant of Alfred. And before the Norman Conquest, um, there was major turmoil. She was actually born abroad. She was born in Hungary, a um, place called Pesh. But she came back to England, and then with all the turmoil, she had to escape again. So she escaped up north to Scotland. She married a king. She married Malcolm III of Scotland. And she was so... I mean, I, I just see the Queen our queen, Elizabeth, and mm -hmm. Margaret as sort of spiritual sisters. Because in that e epoch, you know, the middle of the 10 hundreds, she was revered for her generosity, her kindness, her inclusivity. She was a sovereign as well. She was a soul model then. And then when she passed, she um, was sainted. But her, she was buried at Dunfermline Abbey in Scotland. And the, the link is because in the Platinum Jubilee, Dunfermline achieved city status, one of mm. eight in the UK. And the first tour that the new king and queen consort did after the mourning period was to Dunfermline Abbey. So they linked Elizabeth, the new monarchy, and this ancient monarchy all in this sense of sovereignty. And mm. I thought that was really beautiful. That, that is absolutely fascinating. I knew a little bit about her. I'm glad you mentioned King Alfred because I think he was the greatest king we've ever had. Yeah. And um, also his grandson, Athelstan. That is my favorite period. So I'm glad that she's, was... as it were, on the end of that and the beginning of the, the, the Middle Ages, really. I'm but so glad you mentioned King Alfred as well because we have a king with us who just arrived, Irvin Laszlo, and I want to make sure that we we welcome him to the discussion. Hello, Irvin. Hello, Alison and, and, and Jude and Anne. It's nice to be here. I'm oh. learning a lot. It's wonderful. I'm trying to comprehend. Uh, I don't have a, a monarchy in my in my in my DNA somehow. <laughs> I never had any, any, any fascination for living persons other than perhaps scientists and spiritual people. But I can appreciate this and I can try to understand this. I think it's, I'm very touched by it, you know, and it's remarkable what's happening. One concern I have is about the, the, the bond that is created by, by a great personality. Um, I, I remember the case of Yugoslavia where Tito was a common person and a common leader for all parts, for all people, all the many nationalities. As long as you could see his, his photo on every post office, uh, on every shop window, and so on, Yugoslavia was Yugoslavia, a single entity. Then he passed, very soon it fell apart. They were just separate entities, they still are. And I think what was missing there, what was, was, was due to the failure of Yugoslavia, was the passing of a personality with whom all could understand, who was a war hero, you know, was a hero of, of the defense of, of, of the defense of the country. So that was a fascinating element, uh, a fascinating example of how a personality who is admired, who is, who is put on a high pedestal, can actually hold together a community. 
and I wonder, you know, if you even need it. I'm not British in that sense. I'm, I'm a great ad admirer of Britain and of all things English. And I think it's the most polite, most advanced kind of civilization that we have. But I'm, I'm not a part of it, as it were, and I admire it. So I'm just thinking how, you know, the English community, the Britain, the Great Britain, holds without the Queen. Now, of course, there's a king now, but is that the same? That's something I'd like to ask all of my British friends. Uh, is that the new king? It would be a personality like that. He's on the throne, yes. But is being on a throne enough to hold together a, a country? Or do you mm. need something else? Because if something else was there in Elizabeth. Will there be something else also in Charles III? How do we go from here? I think that Charles has had a long tutelage under his mother. He's very well prepared. He's an extremely sensitive person. He always was. He had a very difficult, unhappy childhood at, at Gordonston, but he somehow came through that. And then there was a, the disastrous marriage, and now he's found his, his true love and, and all is well. But he's always been interested, like his father was, in the concerns of the environment, He's been passionate about the Amazon for, for decades. He's been trying to wake up the world, really, to the peril that the world is in and that we're in, without any success at all for about 30 years. Now, he was ridiculed by the press, always made fun of for talking to trees or whatever they thought he was doing. Um, he he's a wonderful speaker, inspiring speaker, and he has all the qualities to be a very great king, but he hasn't got much time and this is a problem. He's, he's now 72, I think. So he hasn't got a great deal of time. But this is actually a crucial time for the country because it's splintered in every direction. Everybody's fighting with everybody else. <laughs> and this is not good. And we saw in the uh, funeral of the Queen, we saw the whole country come together. We saw thousands or even millions of people um, have a vigil, really, for her. And it brought forth the real quality of the English psyche that people were prepared to um, stand in a queue for five miles for two or three days to reach the place where she was on the catafalque in the Great Hall at Westminster. And this was a signal to the, the mockers, really, and the ridiculers, that there was more to this than they thought. And it really, I think, touched the, particularly the, the soul of women, although men also, but women understood the importance of this ceremony and, and of her reign. And they came in their thousands and millions <laughs> to mourn with her and to say their farewell, to bid her farewell, as Jude, I'm sure, and I did. Jude, you go on. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna start me off again. <laughs> well, why don't we all have a group cry? Maybe that's <laughs> a very cleansing. For the end of the hour, Alison, for, for sure. <laughs> I, um... Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. Just a few thoughts on that. You know, the, the thing is, Irvin, back to your point around personality, it transcends personality in that sense. We've had some not great monarchs, <laughs> we've had some wonderful monarchs, but the institution is the continuity because the institution, when the moment that Queen Elizabeth passed, King Charles was immediately the monarch whenever the coronation will be, and it may be June next year, but whenever it is, he was immediately the monarch. So that continuation of the archetype, whether it's embodied in a woman or a man, 
has continued for a thousand years, essentially. So it's not just the individual, it's what that individual is. I mean, you look at all of the, 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 the surroundings, the environmental, the tradition, you know, that we, we embody. We embody it as a monarchy, but we embody it as a people. There's something, and, and you know, I think the other thing as well is, and the Queen personified this so beautifully, I know Anne appreciates this as I do, and Charles does too, so much of their work is behind the scenes. We talked about Kenichi and Nora earlier and how vital that is, but so much of what they do is not pomp and ceremony. It's going to a small British town in the rain and the cold and, and, and cheering people up and you know supporting a charity or opening something, whatever it may be. There's a vast amount, you know, hundreds and hundreds of engagements for each of the royals or each of the, 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 the sort of senior royals each year. And Charles, of course, as well as the environment, has been a great champion of young people and helping young people, especially those disadvantaged. When I was in business, I don't know if you know this, Anne, I was, I was invited to be part of the Prince's Trust because I was, you know, a very senior businesswoman. I got invited to various things and various visits and various support. So I know some of the work that is done and it is vital, vital work. And it is the mycelium network, you know, like a mycelium network is often beneath the surface, but it's vital for the health of the ecosystem. And to just finish that point, I don't know how Anne, you feel about this. Irving, you may not be aware of this, but I think in Prince William, the new prince and princess of Wales, William and Catherine, I think we've got another generation. And he was brought up by his grandmother and, and follows that sort of North Star. She is his North Star in, in, in here, for him, I think. And I think in Catherine, he's got an incredibly um, wise and loving wife. So his family life is good. He is you know, wise of himself. And I think those two are the next generation. So I think whatever comes and whatever turbulence comes and who knows, I think the monarchy is in as good shape now as I can ever remember it being. Um, and if we go back before Elizabeth, you know, we had the Second World War and all of that. But I think it's in a, a reasonable good shape. I think it's a good shape. Mm. I yeah. think that is the question of the individual and the question of the institution. Absolutely. Example mm -hmm. I talked about before, there was no institution to maintain Yugoslavia together, you see. Yeah. And when the individual passed, then this thing fell apart. Yeah. I'm just thinking, you know, the countries that I know a little more than the others are Hungary and Italy and then the United States. I don't know that much about other United States, but I think it's, it's, it would not be capable of a monarchy. Certainly Italy, if, even if you could bring back the Savoys, the Italians would not accept an individual, you know. Mm. It has to be, and not only a constitution, it has to be a culture with a heritage that is behind it for centuries, in the millennia, something that's built up. It's not from one day to the next. So this has a robustness to it, which is not held, held, held in other countries. A World War II could upset a lot of monarchies, a World War I and a World War II, but they didn't have these deep roots somehow. The, the Kaiser, the, the Emperor, the Emperor Franz Joseph. I can't imagine Austria having another emperor, you know, at this time. So it's, it's, it's a combination of things. I, to my mind, it's a cultural phenomenon. And you have to understand it as such. It's wonderful because it's bonding, it's binding, it's loving. 
it's something where people feel togetherness and oneness, and that's what what's lacking so much in this world otherwise. So there is a point in which people can unite with love. And as you express, and as Anne expresses these things, these feelings, it's very, very touching. It's deeply touching, and it's remarkable. And it deserves to be understood, much better understood than it is. For a couple of days, perhaps or hours, or maybe some weeks, it has penetrated the, con the public, the global consciousness. How does it remain? Is it being kept up? Diana had a personality like that, which captured the global consciousness, you know? But nobody else, as far as I know, in recent history. So here is now is a tremendous challenge. The institution is continuous, is there. The person has to live up to it, has to be part of it. I personally have a great trust in Charles. I think this is green attitude, this is attitude for human wellness and, and underprivileged populations and on. So he is a marvelous person to fill this thought. It's, it doesn't have for long, as we have said, but I think there is an interesting charge and the experiment, the global experiment of having Britain, a monarchy, being headed by a personality continuous in a, such a way that this makes sense. This is not only on paper, that people can actually feel their oneness with the monarchy and with the monarch. monarch. I attach great hope to this. I, I don't feel it myself. I must say I admire it intellectually. I can try to, uh, to empathize with it, but it's wonderful what you express because you both of you here feel it actually. You are it. And that's a great, great thing in today's disconnected and separateness world, type of world. Mm. I, I think it brings, it brings the heart into prominence rather than the head. And it shows how important the heart is, how much more important than the head, and how the heart can unite us all. I just wanted to say one word about the sacred ceremony of uh, anointing yes. in uh, in the Queen's thing and also in the King's to be, because that sacred ceremony with holy oil, I don't know what the oil was, whether it was um, the same oil that Mary Magdalene anointed Jesus's head with or some other kind of oil. That was called spikenard and it came from the Himalayas. But this ancient ceremony, which is so, so humble, she has to be so humble sitting on that throne in her white shift with the Archbishop presiding in this holy moment, really, and anointing her. That is something I don't think that other monarchs, I, I can't be sure of this, but I don't think that other European monarchs have to the same extent anyway. And it's that ceremony that sets the scene for the whole reign, doesn't it, Jude? It does, Anne, and, and I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, I think we keep have, we do, it's more than culture, Irvin. I think there is this level of sacredness and sacred covenant between our monarch and the people, and, and, and Elizabeth embodied that so beautifully. I'm sure Charles will continue to do that, and William will. Sure. But I guess the other side, just going back to your point on... on um, culture though you know the queen in when the queen came to the throne um in 1952 and then crowned in in 1953 um we just come out of the second world war um she came in as the monarch the constitutional monarch of 32 nations and an incipient commonwealth of only a few nations in her 70 years 
she's she's now when she passed she was only the queen of 15 countries but she wasn't just the queen of britain she's queen of australia of, of canada you know of, of new zealand many other countries but i think she has often spoken to and, and i'd love your call on this as well one of her greatest joys was the development of the common wealth which is now something like 54 countries and even those countries who decided that they wanted to have an elected president rather than a monarch chose almost all of them, I think, to retain their membership of the growing Commonwealth. We've even got a couple of countries coming into the Commonwealth that were never part of the British Empire or any sort of historical connections, but want to be part of this growing community of nations that is from the heart, I think, and you're right. You know, it's much more of a heart-based, heart community-based, you know, uh, you know, you you choose to join, you're in, you, you choose and then you're invited in. But I think that's, that's a wonderful um, achievement that she really was a very pivotal for. I don't know if the Commonwealth would have become what it is today and with a promise to go forward under Charles as, 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 as head of the Commonwealth, without that incredible 70 years of dedication to its aims. And so, I, again, I think that's something. And the other thing is the evolution. It's not, the monarchy is not, the institution itself is evolutionary. Mm. She evolved it enormously along with Philip. Um, Charles is continuing to recognise it needs to be slimmed down. William is continuing to do that. So, you know, there's a real, there's a real, in-depth recognition that it cannot be static. It has to be and attuned and aligned with the evolutionary impulse and flow of, of um, not just Britain, not just the Commonwealth, but the whole world in that sense. I think the next 10 years are going to be crucial to see what um, King Charles does and also William when his turn comes, because we are poised at this moment of choice and we're in between the age of Pisces and the age of Aquarius. We're in that interregnum, as you might call it, or that little, maybe 200-year space between those two great epochs. And this is very important. And I don't think people, they, people feel it, but they may not know it consciously because we are thinking about it all the time. and I'm writing about it all the time. Uh, and I think that um, this is... As we say, it's a continuity, it's an evolutionary movement. We can't stay still. And the minute we stay still, all the attackers move in. So it has to be something <laughs> that is fluid and evolving, as you've said, so rightly said, Jude. Um, I think that's... Um... And I have a question, uh, uh, sort of apropos of, of all that we're talking about. You have spoken about uh, quite a lot about the ancients the, who had a deep sense of awe and respect for the cosmos and nature, which has been lost ever since, I believe, the Bronze Age, uh, and that religions have not taken us into this realm to help us better understand who we are, why we're here, for that matter. Um, do you feel that... Is there a kind of a paradox, if you will, that um, the monarchy is representative of, representative of the masculine solar era and the queen herself was a representation of the feminine lunar era and they were actually coexisting? Does that make sense? Is yes, that an unusual? 
I think it does, because unconsciously, I think that the Queen brought back the values of the lunar era, which were above all mm -hmm. service of the people. Governments have forgotten that they're here to serve the people because they're mostly competing with each other on the mm -hmm. world stage. So they've forgotten their primary role. But she reminded governments and everybody else <laughs> that the primary <laughs> role is service. And in that sense, I think she, she certainly, um, what's the word, activated ancient memories ancient ways of behaving, which she may not have been aware of, but which is there in the collective unconscious, if you like. So she was able to, um, as it were, give voice to these different values and give supreme voice to them. She was not there talking about power, but um, that, that what Judah said over and over again of, of service. And I think that's just so important because we've, we have to move into that other mode, otherwise we've had it as a species if we don't all of us realize that we have to help each other, love each other, um, grow together and realize we're not here on this planet to twiddle our thumbs and, and seek our own aims. We're here to serve the planet primarily. And secondly, we're here to serve the life of the planet in ways of maybe our own children or the animals or the plants, insects, whatever. But it's the whole panorama of service that we're involved in, as David Attenborough has said so brilliantly in, in, in his marvelous programs. This, he is an awakener also of this um, ancient awareness that everything hangs together. There's no separation either between the divine ground and us or anything else. And that's another thing I'm writing about is the need to change our image of God because it's insufficient to carry us through the next phase. It is too narrow and it's too patriarchal and it ha doesn't have the feminine. So the queen compensated herself for that lack, although she was completely upheld by the image of God that she'd inherited, and that was uh, what sustained her, as it were. But nevertheless, she was able to introduce her own concept of what divine service is. I think that's just wonderful. I, I agree. And, and Alison, going back to that point, and the, the lunar yes. solar, and the sacred marriage, of course, is the, is the sacred marriage of the feminine and masculine. I mean, some of the work we've been doing over the last few years is, is, is literally, and this, this, this evolution of sentience on a planetary and, and cosmic scale. And very interestingly, within the British Isles, is this sense of the, the arising of the feminine leadership and the arise the co-arising of the masculine spirituality mm. and how that then at both the, the, the mundane landed level but also the the, the the higher levels of consciousness are now re-entering into that integral sacred marriage so i think it's very interesting that mm. Char, as you said charles has always been incredibly spiritual as indeed the queen was but you know he's really been emphasizing through his lifelong audition to this point <laughs> of uh, the longest audition in history um <laughs> you know masculine spirituality and now he's moving that masculine spirituality into the leadership aspect and the queen embodied both the leadership and the spirituality <laughs> the, the other thing is 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 Anne knows far more about this than i do but of course two and a half thousand years ago there was that epoch which was called the axial age where you know there was the impulse of of new spirituality new religions and my sense and and like and i'm doing a lot of writing at the moment <clears throat> is I'm, I'm i'm describing this time as as 
a coming unitive age. Mm. So just as two and a half thousand years ago, we had a coming axial age, I think we are waking up to remember we're inseparable. And so the narrative of that, a unitive narrative of that, all that we're all writing about. Um, I saw, Irving, your incredible 10 road signs to, of this time, which was wonderful. But I'm down describing what we are in as the birthing of a, potentially of a new unitive age mm-hmm. where we can celebrate unity and diversity and, and like the queen, embody the evolutionary flow of its opportunity. So. Mm. And a new consciousness, Jude. It, that's what it's all about, because it cannot be... Well, what I mean is unitive consciousness. Yeah, and it's awareness of being something completely different from what we've ever thought before, because we nobody told us why exactly. we're here on this planet. Nobody <laughs> told us where we go when we die or where we've come from before we're born. These are questions which need answering now, and I think they'll be part of this new consciousness. I think what... Um, Christopher Beige calls it the future human, and, and also um, Jean Houston and Anna Lowe Smitsman. The new human is coming into being, and the young people now probably are beginning to feel the embryonic rise of, of this new kind of consciousness. They're looking for it all around. They can't find it in the culture as it is, but as the culture as it's becoming, I think. I think that's absolutely right. Absolutely right. It's interesting that you mentioned Jean and Anna Luce because I was actually going to refer to Anna Luce that she has um, she has talked about uh, five new archetypes, five new that perhaps we're now in a, in an age where we need to revamp what we consider to be archetypes, and she had identified five, I think, uh, ru- ruler, creator, artist, sage, innocent, explorer. Uh, no, I, I don't know if I know. I'm I'm reading the wrong list of archetypes. There are so many, but she did mention five, and I was very intrigued by that. Are we in the process of reforming and redesigning what has been the traditional model of archetypes into something totally new? I think we are, and I think we're being held by helped by people on the other side, probably including the queen. Um, <laughs> Because they are waiting for us to be able to become capable of listening to the advice that they've been giving us for thousands of years. And I think this is coming through now in in many ways. There's lots of channeling material coming through, which I think is very important. Mm. There's all the people like Jude and myself writing books, and dozens and dozens of them, and giving talks and everything. So there is a tremendous ferment in the world culture. And there's also fear as we mentioned at the beginning, fear of nuclear annihilation. But that is accelerating the process of change. Because if if we don't have this fear, we're not going to budge. We just stay as we were sort of thing and things will just go on. But Mm. but the the fear of something so catastrophic, which would destroy a great part of the earth, as well as millions of people, is activating survival instincts on a different level, not in responding with bombs but responding with different ideas and, and different actions. And that's, I think, absolutely fascinating. I don't want to depart from this world. I'm, I'm probably just about ready, but I don't want to because I'm so interested in what's going to happen. What do you think, Jude? I think you're going to be with us regardless, Anne. I'm just as a queen. <laughs> I don't think you're going anywhere. You're just going to be on the other side of the doorway and say, hang around. <laughs> 
But I, I, I also, <laughs> I also been doing quite a lot of work mm. over the last few years in terms of the evolution of archetypes, not just new archetypes, but evolutionary ah. archetypes. Fascinating. Uh, and I think that is really interesting um, because... And other people who are doing this, uh, Richard Olivier, who I know Anne knows as well. You know, these archetypes, these astrological archetypes, the Logoi archetypes. So what I've been looking at is, is two additional um, archetypes in addition to the 10 classical um, astrological archetypes of Sol, Luna and the planets other than Gaia. So I've been attuning with Chiron as an archetypal healer, as an evolving healer archetype, mm. because our, our illusion of separation, our worldview of separation, of course, has caused enormous trauma. And so it seems to me that in 1977, when Chiron was first seen and named, and named after the ancient um, um, Chiron, you know, the centaur, the archetypal healer, that Chiron has a part to play in our collective conscious at this point as a healing influence um, in terms of our, our, our healing, our, our relationship, you know, with ourselves, each other, our beloved Gaia and beyond. And the other evolutionary archetype that's coming through mm. very strongly is that of what we call in astrology the North Node of Higher Purpose, mm. which is like the whole of the universal's impulse to evolve being seen in this archetype and the archetype of the north node involves a, an aspect of of sun and moon and earth mm. so still this is still something and i'd love your views on this this is still something that feels emergent in the field but i'm really sensing that those two evolutionary archetypes the healer and the higher purpose are really potentially able to help us uh, with all those wonderful voices and all that wonderful support that you were just speaking to through this, through this, you know, transitionary, birthing, emergent, um, turbulence. There was a very interesting conversation last night on the SMN, which I joined in on, starting with the question is, what is the matter with us? And there were many people who made different um, suggestions and one of them was that we're populated another was mine that we have to change our images of god but the third which came from a, a psychiatrist who's now in his 90s i think um i can't remember his name at the moment uh, sanderson alan sanderson he said if people knew they were immortal there would be a huge change in consciousness and i think that ties into your healer chiron yeah. archetype and also purpose higher purpose if we knew our higher purpose so much of our hatred and misery and unhappiness and confusion would just vanish because we would have a focus and a relationship with that higher purpose and and we mm. would be healed as it were from the terrible suffering i i put it down to the myth of the fall in which we were told we were sinful beings and we've been told that for 2000 years now, and it's gone deeply into the human psyche. And if we discovered that we're not sinful beings, but divine beings with immortal souls, what a difference that would make, what a huge difference that would make. And so I put the, the change really into those two things. First of all, that we are immortal and, and secondly, not sinful, but also that we have a purpose on this planet. And that is to really love the planet and be loved 
in return because we're part of her. She is our mother. We can't exist without her. All these things are coming in. It's so exciting to be living at this time. <laughs> you know, you, you, it, it's exquisite to follow the course of this conversation. And I, I'm realizing that, Jude, you had uh, come, both of you had come into a sense of your purpose, as I think Irvin also sensed at a, at a rather young age. You were fortunate enough to have some kind of a sense. Uh, I know that, Anne, you had mentioned uh, that uh, when you were in, I think, your early 20s to rescue the feminine values, that was your sort of life's work, your life's purpose. Uh, Jude, you came from a family lineage of lionesses, if you will, uh, who instilled certain values that were, it was just no question for you how to approach and continue into your life and let things unfold and help inspire open people to understanding. Irvin, I think through the musical note, uh, you were inspired, you were prompted, you were all fortunate enough to know your purpose, in a sense, from a very tender age, a young age. So many people are not. So many people are upended and searching and traumatized, in a sense, by not having that kind of anchor. Because in a world where the storms seem to be accelerating and intensifying, how reassuring to know from some deep place within, ah, that's why I'm here. Ah, that, that makes sense. Ah. That's my my queen role in life. It's very reassuring, isn't it? And it's a blessing when you find it so early on. Yes, you put it beautifully, Alison. I think that's absolutely what people need to feel. But mm. I didn't start so young, actually. I had a wonderful mm. mother, and I had channeled messages through her which said mm. that the world has to change. Even at the age of 13, this is what I was learning. Mm. But I didn't come into my own until my 50s, until I had an extraordinary dream of the cosmic woman, and then I knew what my true purpose was. But until then, I was sort of faffing around. And, uh, <laughs> I think that's a technical <laughs> term, Anne, isn't it? Faffing. I, I did a, and Alice and I did an awful lot of faffing as well. I, okay. I, I kept going and my curiosity kept going. And, and I, I guess mm. at a very deep level, yeah. the other realisation I came to, which Anne referred to, mm. is I remembered that I was inseparable from the whole world. Mm. However tough it was, however, uh, you know, for a long time when I was young, I really didn't want to be here. It was just too hard. It was just too hard. But I kept going and my lioness and lineage made sure I kept going. But like <laughs> Anne, it, it, you know, it was a journey. It wasn't, oh, yes, wake up and I'm young and everything's in place. And it's an ongoing journey. But I would say, like Anne too, it was only probably around 50 with all the journey so far, that suddenly it all came together. Doesn't it, Joe? Mm. Yes. And also, the most important thing is that suddenly we had a whole con um, collaboration of friends who had also come to the point of realizing that we could work exactly. together. For instance, David Lorimer of the SMN and, and Irvin, and yeah. people suddenly have realized that they've been preparing to work together for this exactly. great. Um, as it were, revelation that's coming through, I suppose, and working to bring it through in their own lives, but also in collaboration mm. with others, like that great meeting in, in Canada on Sunday. This mm. is a collaborative endeavour, and I can see that we've all been born in different places and slightly different times, but we've all been drawn together, little by little, by mm -hmm. our joint interests, 
And that has given tremendous strength to our work and, and um, sort of depth to our work, really. And the sense of collaboration is, is very healing because, as Jude said, it was very difficult in the beginning. It was difficult for me as well in different ways, but it was perplexing, confusing, not knowing where I was going or what I was really doing. Was I choosing the right husband? Thank God I did, but I could have chosen any number of wrong ones. <laughs> sort of, that could have yes. put the whole thing quite wrong. <laughs> well... <laughs> I, I must say that I think today's conversation, much like uh, the queen having had multiple rainbows uh, overhead in honor of her transition, I feel like we have three rainbows today in this conversation with Irvin, Anne, and Jude. It's, it's truly special, so vital that these conversations continue. Uh, Irvin, do you have any, any thoughts that you'd like to conclude with as we wind down this Royal Road to Recovery <laughs> episode? Deep, deep down, we are one. And the evolutionary imperative is to discover that and to join us in love, with love, unconditional love. And that is the purpose. The purpose is a higher level of consciousness which penetrates this planet and radiates from this planet. I think the entire cosmos is, is consciousness. And we are windows on it. We are ways in which that consciousness can further evolve. The great events of our time are so many challenges for us to move beyond the surface of events, move deeper down and find that the oneness is really a coherence which has been born, being born since the Big Bang and it continues to evolve and that we are a part of it. The ultimate purpose is not difficult, but I think it is so intimately rooted, not with the body, but with the consciousness, which is a major and basic element of the universe. If we can elucidate that, if we can advance that, then we fulfill our purpose. Perhaps it's a personal statement, that's my belief. My consciousness is my contribution to the evolution of the cosmos. That's the way we can all together evolve. And what we hear here today is really the enunciations, the elucidations of this deep sense of oneness or belonging as it, as it comes forth, even in the midst of chaos and uncertainty and depression. This is a very difficult discussion that we have had today, a conversation today. Never would have on any forum dealing with current finances or environments or whatever the everyday affairs. This is all up, but the upshift is here with us and it's in, in our consciousness, it's in us. If we can elucidate it, if we can express it, we can make the whole world shift up higher on the level of evolution, on the evolutionary scale. I trust in that. And I find that conversations such as we are having here are absolutely a channel for people to open up and to say, aha, I can see that, I can feel that, I can be a part of it, I want to be part of it. That's obviously the contagion that we want, not the virus, but love. I mean, that's what is really, truly contagious and can get us past. We are in a very, very difficult period. 
we mustn't forget that. We are really at, at a decision point, at a bifurcation point. The wrong decisions can take us into incredible, catastrophic, some, some of them irreversible positions. So let's not forget, but that is all not a threat, but a danger. It's a catalyst. It's a challenge. And that is why we can move forward, because we are now challenged. We know that we have to move. We can do many things, but we can't stay as we are. The great lesson is unsustainability. You can't be what you were. You have to be something different. Now, how does to bring this back again? How does this relate to this wonderfully felt community in Britain, which English people feel more than any other, other type of person, as everybody can join it? How does this relate to the, to the, to the monarchy as a form of as an expression of oneness? in society. I think this needs to be explored. It has been probably explored, but it needs to be further thought. What is the future of monarchy as an expression of oneness in society and of the oneness of society with the cosmos? Big, big questions, very exciting. And I'm very grateful for those who organized this meeting, for Alison who's moderating it, and Jude and Anne for participating in it. It's a great event. To, to, to listen to, to share, and to hear over and over again, and then to join in. Mm. Just a joy and a privilege to hear your thoughts, Irvin, your beautiful expression. Uh, Jude, uh, Anne, any, any last thoughts before we terminate this episode today? Anne, would you like to go first? I've, yeah. No, I, I think this has been the most interesting and inspiring conversation. <clears throat> If people listen to it, I think they will get hope and um, inspiration from. I really do. Thank you so much for arranging it, and it's been a great pleasure. Absolutely a privilege and a joy. Jude, last just, thoughts? Just to add, it's been my privilege and joy to be for us all together. But I always, whenever I have a sense of, of the Queen, I first think of love or feel of love. I then feel of her gratitude and the gratitude she showed to others when they were so grateful to her. And the third thing is joy. I mean, everyone who spoke of her, because you, you didn't see that private woman that often, told of her sense of humor. And so for me, having that joy in our lives, you know, with all the turbulence, is, re, you know, holding that love and joy and gratitude in our hearts. And I go back to one final quote of her. In the middle of the pandemic, when we're all in lockdown, she gave a fairly rare address to the nation. And in it, she quoted Vera Lynn, who sang a song in the Second World War. And she said, we will meet again. And we will. Oh, on that very, very moving note, which I think all of our listeners today will be sensing in their own unique way. I want to say thank you. Thank you. You know, when mourning loss, it's easy to lose ourselves in the process, like falling in love and then breaking up only to find we have no clue where we disappeared to. Or when children grow up and leave home, leaving us with empty nest syndrome. Why isn't the global body as demonstrably important, not just conceptually, but demonstrably 
as the individual regal body that was recently laid to rest from the common wealth of nations to the common wellness of nations, well-being of nations, maybe the new paradigm of monarchy can throw a colossal party for the planet celebrating every living being and broadcast that live worldwide. It's something to think about, to think about. That would make quite the dawn of an era of well-being and upshifting. So on that uplifting note, I am Alison Goldwyn, thanking our brilliant maestro, Irvin Laszlo, and our absolutely brilliant bright light guests, uh, Anne Baring and Jude Curvin, the divine feminine known as Anne Baring and her royal lioness, Jude Curvin, as we look forward to bringing you an engaging season two of Dawn of an Era of Well-Being upcoming. Stay tuned and stay attuned. Thank you for joining us. Dawn of an Era of Well-Being is a co-production of the Laszlo Institute, ITEA Institute, and Select Books. It's produced by Nora Cesar and Kenichi Sugihara with theme music Chimera by Piba DuPont. The book, Dawn of an Era of Well-Being, co-authored by Irvin Laszlo and Frederick Sal, is available wherever books or e-books are sold. Please subscribe to Dawn of an Era of Well-Being, the podcast on Apple or Spotify for more fascinating guests and discussion. My name is Alison Goldwyn, founder and creative director of Synchronistory.com, a future party for the planet broadcast live worldwide. Wishing you well-being till we talk again next week. Bye.